From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with a sad story and a warning. This story does deal with disturbing subject matter that could upset some listeners. Talking about something that happened at the Alex Fraser Bridge yesterday, and this has renewed calls to put in barriers on that bridge to find a way to install suicide barriers, safety barriers on that span. And joining me to talk more about this is Harj Sadu, Deputy Chief of the Delta Police Department. Department. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And I know not, not getting into all of the details of what happened, but I know officers with the Delta Police Department were called to the Alex Fraser Bridge yesterday. They've been called there there several times. Can, can you tell us a little bit even how that impacts police officers or how police officers, how, how officers do respond when they get that call? Well, obviously, when we get a, a call that occurs like that of a person in crisis, it's a, a priority call and our officers are attending that scene. And once they arrive, their first priority is to ensure that they can uh, engage uh, with the individual and de-escalate the situation in a safe manner, both for the individual in crisis as well as the officers. And we do understand when these incidences occur that it does create disruption for the traveling public there, but we need to ensure we create a safe space for our officers to engage the person in crisis. Does it help the officers if there are barriers on, on bridges when they are called to situations like this? Absolutely. Any any sort of uh, mitigation strategy that can be uh, deployed is important. The Alex Fraser Bridge, again, we've been dealing with this issue for several years now, and we did notice that more and more individuals were attending the Fra- Fra- Alex Fraser Bridge when they were in crisis, because as other bridges get retrofitted or rebuilt, such as Patolo and the Golden Years, uh, some of our metal bridges, uh, Queensboro and Second Arrows, are able to have... Uh, Um, re-engineering done to create uh, suicide barriers because often people in crisis they're you know they're competing emotions and if there is some barrier that may give them that second of pause before they may actually consider uh, uh, trying to climb over a higher um, deterrence uh, than jumping over a lower railing so definitely we believe uh, barriers is something that should be uh, introduced at the on bridges especially the Alex Fraser Bridge And we have had ongoing discussions with the Ministry of Transport over the last several years as to how can we implement some of these barriers. And again, they've worked with us very closely and it have indicated that unfortunately when this built uh, bridge was built, the design of the bridge, adding any more weight weight load to it would cause issues on the integrity of the engineering. And right now with the current uh, structures that are in place to be able to create those barriers, it wouldn't be feasible, but they do continue to look at additional technology that may, could be implemented in the future. Uh, I know there are, are more calls to at least explore it or to try and see if maybe there's an engineering department at a university that could look at this and could maybe come up with, with a solution. Does that seem like something at least that would be something at least trying to find a solution here? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've done our own research and uh, looked at it and barriers are among 
one of the most effective solutions for preventing suicide on bridges. There's been lots of studies done. I know in San Francisco, Golden Eight Years Bridge, uh, Golden uh, Bridge had a lot of issues, and uh, since they uh, implemented barrier solutions there, uh, they've had a real reduction in uh, suicides that have uh, been successful at that location. So yes, it's one of the main priorities that we need. Uh, the ministry and other uh, specialists and people, not just in BC, but you know across Canada, around the world, to maybe come up with some solutions for this type of uh, bridge to have some engineering engineering options that we can implement. And again, I know you, your department, the Delta Police Department, has been advocating for this and for the installation of these barriers. Uh, what about things like uh, emergency call boxes or, or those boxes that are connected to crisis counsellors? Are there other types of measures that the department would also like to see taken on that bridge? Absolutely. And we actually did... Uh uh, when we were looking at this issue several years ago, that was one of the things we worked closely with the Ministry of Transport and Pellet. And in 2019, there were crisis uh, call boxes that were installed on the bridge on both sides and are currently active and available for people to use. But as we know, unfortunately, often when people are in crisis, you know, they may not be thinking uh, uh, coherently and maybe walk by them or don't even see them. So uh, we've had some success with them. So even one life saved, you know, is a tremendous success. But again, it's just, it's not enough in regards to what we're seeing in regards to how many people are actually attending and utilizing those boxes or uh, unfortunately people that are actually going ahead and uh, uh, looking to jump from uh, the location. Right. And uh, and uh, Deputy Chief, just kind of going back to something you said as well, because, I mean, uh, the goal obviously is, is to help a person who's in crisis and to, to de-escalate the situation. But again, if there was some solution as far as a, as a barrier, and maybe it wouldn't look the same as some of the other bridges because of the design and because of, of the way that the Alex Fraser was built, uh, but, but could it, do you think, also kind of ease the impact on officers and, and be a tool for officers? Sorry, you mean from a barrier perspective? I'm from a barrier perspective, and just kind of when when de-escalating a situation like that, does it would it just potentially also just add another another level of of support for the officers? Oh, absolutely, because I think anything that uh, allows uh, the officer to continue to have dialogue with the individual and you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult for them to climb over a potential railing. That that every second and minute is allowing our officers, again, to hopefully build some rapport and relationship and, you know, uh, be able to convince the individual to, you know, come to safety and to continue the conversation. So anything that we can have in place to prevent it being that easy to climb the railing would benefit, obviously, the person in crisis the most, but also our officers in trying to deal with that uh, critical incident. And again, do you have any kind of confidence that, again, with these renewed calls to at least look at this or to find a solution, do, do you have a, or what is your confidence level that, that maybe there is, there is the will to do that and there is a solution that could be found? Yeah, again, we've, uh, through our board and our mayor, we've sent letters to the Ministry of Transport and the minister that we're requesting them to make this a priority to explore alternative mechanisms to put barriers on the Alex Fraser Bridge. Uh, you know, we recognize, you know, it, there's a cost that comes with it, but, you know, ultimately what's uh, one life worth if we can explore that? And again, as technology advances, we're hoping there is a solution out there in the near future. Deputy Chief Harj Sadu, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Joe.
Well, it was a record-breaking year when it comes to cruise ships. A record 332 cruise ships carrying about 1.25 million passengers all visited the port of Vancouver at the, uh, the, Van- the Canada Place Terminal this cruise season. And the cruise sector, though, has played a positive role in helping build the, the return to tourism in British Columbia with uh, more than uh, $2.7 billion in economic activity injected into the VC economy, uh, which is what I would expect will be the case for this year from the cruise industry. It's a real positive contribution to the overall economy. So that was Barry Penner speaking earlier today, a consultant to the cruise ship industry. And joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Sri Madawell, Port of Vancouver Harbour Master. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Good afternoon. Thanks, Jill, for having me on the show. Well, it sounds like a very busy and a very uh, productive and successful uh, cruise ship season. Does this uh, kind of prove or show that uh, COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror and that this industry has fully bounced back? I think this is a very exciting time for us as the Port of Vancouver, but also for all the local communities and the businesses uh, that support the cruise industry. Absolutely. I think we have seen a a big jump into the tourism uh, industry. Uh, We've seen that in the airline sector and we've seen similar in the cruise sector. Uh, The cruise industry, of course, I mean, has its own challenges, but had done some great work on the COVID protocol, working with the federal and the provincial partners. So I think uh, it's exciting times. Uh, The the, uh, people are getting comfortable and confident of the protocols in place on board the ships and they're feeling safe. Uh, So excited to see those numbers coming through. And so did it surpass the expectations or what was kind of anticipated for this season? I think so. Uh, I, I think we did, definitely had a lot of cruise ships last year as well. Uh, this year was, of course, the number of vessels has gone up to 332. But last year, what was noticeable uh, that in the early stages of the season, we still had a very low occupancy on the cruise ship. And this year, again, it was a very bumper season. Some of the cruise lines uh, reported almost close to 90% occupancy. So that has been really fantastic news because they were able to achieve economies of scale and and have uh, the full capacity booked. Um, So that's that's exciting uh, news for us. And when we're when we're talking about the ships that are coming here, and again the number, uh, an impressive number of uh, 332 cruise ships, are there any restrictions, or as far as the size of the ships that can come to Canada Place or come to Vancouver, are there any uh, kind of restrictions there? Are there any any ships that can't come here that can't be accommodated? Yeah, I think most of the vessels, uh, Jill, would be accommodated uh, that we have uh, currently working in the North Pacific uh, um, uh, trade, uh, the Alaska route. Uh, We do have some challenges uh, with some ships uh, around the Lionsgate Bridge uh, for overheight. So we had to kind of uh, get those vessels at a specific tide uh, to clear the bridge. Uh, But overall, things are uh, working well and we do have the infrastructure to kind of support uh, the larger vessels. Uh, there has been, uh, well, this is a, a good news story as far as the uh, rebounding of the industry in the season. There's been a lot of comparisons made to the number of passengers in Vancouver, uh, Vancouver's ports compared to Seattle, that uh, that Vancouver reporting about 1.25 million passengers, uh, but Seattle reporting about 1.7 million passengers. Do we know why more people, that many more people and, and ships are stopping in Seattle instead of Vancouver? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a good comparison to kind of have. Uh, we have enough business there to kind of support both the ports uh, with Seattle and, and Vancouver. But oh, I think 
overall we have seen a big jump in the numbers at all ports uh, in within canada as well and then in the us so that's again a good news story there for the industry as a whole uh, the passengers are really looking forward uh, to the cruise sector as part of their uh, travel experience uh, vancouver has lots to offer uh, we definitely have a home port base so the the vessels have a full service capability uh the dollar uh, exchange uh, goes a long way here in in canada for the us passengers uh, etc so there's a lot of differences but also similarities uh, between both the ports uh, here and uh, the west coast right but with with those reasons though wouldn't it be more enticing for people to come to vancouver especially uh, americans like you said with the exchange so so, so why are we seeing uh, hundreds of thousands more people going to seattle yeah those are unique aspects uh, for the travel uh, um, for um, the seattle and um, vancouver one of the major factors is not only about the the dollar value but is also about the the ease of traveling to the us rather than coming to the to canada and then taking a ferry a, a cruise back to alaska and then coming and then going through the customs so differences uh, some people definitely come and experience uh, the canadian landscape many tourists uh, stop over after their cruise um, unlike seattle or other locations are there any plans that you know of or or, or do you think there should be uh, explorations of expanding either the the port capacity or even building another port to encourage more cruise activity in vancouver Yeah, we're looking at all options. I mean, the first goal is to kind of uh, maximize the capacity that we have at Canada Place, improve the customer experience. We had a significant uh, number of high uh, cruise seasons. So almost 75% of our high cruise days occurred in 2023. Uh, so most of our Sundays during the peak uh, summer um, period, we had almost three ships alongside us, almost close to about 15,000 passengers every single day. on that piece so we are looking at all the short term and the long term prospects as well for future capacity and also working with the cruise line partners would there ever be an appetite or or looking at building a terminal not in vancouver that somewhere somewhere out of the downtown core taking uh, cruise ships and passengers somewhere else Yeah I think this is a very interesting uh, prospect to kind of look at uh, and as I said all options on the table it, it and it eventually depends on the cruise lines because they are the ones who brings in business and what is will be the most suitable location for them to uh, have the travel experience Canada as you know is right in downtown um, none of the major ports around the world has a similar experience that Vancouver gives and we were also voted as one of the leading port in, in North America this year by the World Travel Awards so that was another accolade in our, our for our team and and for the port uh, so those are the benefits of having a terminal close to downtown and gives a unique experience to the to the passengers uh, is Ballantine pier still being used or is it now mainly at, at to Canada place Uh no I think the Ballantine pier is is now uh, uh, transformed into a container terminal so that's expansion that has happened around the the Centum location so that's where uh, that uh, facility is so the new cruise terminal or the only cruise operation that happens occurs at Canada Place Right. Okay. I, and and that's what I thought because I, when you talked about the kind of the unique experience, I know that we had talked about that in the past that uh, people if you were expecting to come to Canada Place and you went to a different pier, it could be a bit uh, not exactly what people uh, were expecting and and probably I would think most people would prefer uh, given the choice going to Canada Place. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's something uh, really people enjoy 
And I think as, as the local residents, we need to really be proud of a world-class facility here. I know cruise lines plan in advance, so they plan quite far ahead. Are you able to, or are we able to kind of see if next year's season we're anticipating it's going to be around the same lines as far as the size of this year or, or perhaps even more? Yeah, absolutely. I think cruise line definitely have a long-term plan. The booking itself goes up to two years, but their plans are almost close to five. Uh, we're seeing some positive feedback, and, and the cruise lines are expecting a, a good uh, positive outlook uh, for 2024. Uh, so far, we do have similar number of ship calls uh, expecting in 2024. In terms of the passenger count, again, we'll rely on the cruise line's forecast, uh, but definitely looks promising. Uh, and I'm very optimistic that we should be able to even break uh, 2023 records for next year. All right. Well, it uh, is uh, definitely a good news story when you look at uh, the from an economic point of view and uh, what it does to uh, bringing those tourist dollars. Uh, Captain Shri Madawal, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. You've likely seen stories, heard stories about dogs and dog therapy programs, how they can really help somebody, whether you're stressed out, you're needing that canine comfort everywhere from universities to airports and many other places that we do find the therapy dogs. But apparently we have been, well, it's been pretty one-sided when looking at the number of participants who are taking part in studies where we learn more about therapy dogs and the great work that they can do. That is going to change with a new study that is taking place. And joining me to talk more about this is John Tyler Binfett, Associate Professor in the UBC Okanagan School of Education and Director of Building Academic Retention through Canines. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Good afternoon. Happy to be here. So what have we been doing as far as, as looking at the participants in studies when we are looking at dog therapy and the, the benefits of that? So that, that we, it seems like it hasn't been very, it hasn't been um, a good sampling of, you could say, the, the general public. Well, yeah. And when we run studies at UBC and elsewhere, other researchers, and it's certainly not unique to our studies, we see the participants, as you mentioned, skewed to, to women tend to participate upwards of 70% of the sample, sometimes 80%. So we started asking questions and doing an analysis as to why this was happening. And we thought, well, let's run different, uh, sort of take a different approach. And we had uh, a session with just men, just women, and then a session for gender diverse students. And so that was our sort of approach to, to figuring, well, what's happening here and how is this working for everybody across the campus? And, and just to go back to that number, that's a, a huge number, 70%. Do you know why, or is it just women are more likely to, to volunteer and participate, or why is that such a high number? Well, we think we do know on Canadian campuses, there are more uh, women students than men, about 56% uh, women. So there's more uh, student women students accessible for studies. That's one thing. But we also know that women take care of their mental health maybe more openly than men do. And so they're more, you know, sort of uh, less reluctant to seek help and might engage in these sorts of uh, interventions to, to bolster their well-being more so than men or, or other students. And so by changing that up and by, uh, by having different genders and, and, um, and opening that up, how does that change kind of the research itself or what you're exploring? 
Well, this was really, Jill, the first study that sort of cracked that open and said, let's take a different approach. We still don't know why, but what we do know is that spending time with therapy dogs, and certainly the dogs that bark uh, are well-seasoned at this um, in supporting students, but spending time with therapy dogs is a... uh, an effective way across genders. It doesn't matter the gender, the effects pre to post on well-being and ill-being, so bolstering sort of happiness and optimism and positive affect and connectedness to campus, campus, and then reducing ill-being, homesickness, loneliness, anxiety, works effectively uh, regardless of the, the gender group you're in. So now the question is, well, how do we get more men and more gender diverse students to come? And we know from our open-ended, we did some qualitative work, and people feel differently in these sessions. Certainly the gender diverse students said that they felt safe and that they felt that it was a welcoming, uh, supportive environment for them. So this is something that researchers will start considering around the delivery of uh, access to therapy dogs. And how did you actually study this uh, with the students? And what did they actually do that you were then able to measure it? Yeah, we did a pre-test of all these well-being, ill-being measures, so students filled out surveys. They then were, were assigned to a therapy dog and handler for 20 minutes and then returned for post-test surveys. So it's sort of an ABA design, we call that, pre-test intervention post-test. And um, the dogs at Bark are very seasoned. They participate in studies on a regular basis, and there are 60 therapy dog teams that work in, uh, in all kinds of studies we have in the community at the RCMP, at the Blood uh, Plasma Center here in Kelowna, and then, of course, on campus. And and then were there any surprises or and obviously looking at this and, and bringing, like you said, uh, more women, men, non-binary uh, students or to participate in this? Did anything stand out or were there any kind of unexpected uh, conclusions? We had looked at the publications um, over the last 10 years, which, you know, identified predominantly women participants. And we were surprised at how well we were or sort of easily we were able to recruit gender diverse students. And this is really the first study that has a large subsample of gender diverse students in it. You will not see other researchers uh, reporting, uh, you know, subsamples of these these students. They don't seem to participate or self-identify within studies. So this is really kind of a a progressive study that sort of pushes the envelope forward around understanding how to support students um, across campus. And and so do you, would that information then be used to for for programs or, or more wellness programs now that that you see the the response from a more diverse group? Does it help hone the programs or or, or better focus the programs to, to make sure that they're that they're beneficial to everyone? Well, as scientists, we're really trying to figure out why do they seem these spending times with dogs, spending time with therapy dogs seems to appeal to women more so. And so we want to support all students. So we have to figure out, are there barriers that students are experiencing? How can we get them to, to come to sessions? So that's sort of our next, um, where we're headed next is we're going to try to demystify that and find out about motivation of students. But, you know, we know university students, Jill, are not good help seekers. They figure they can just kind of solve it on their own. So this is really important to figure out how can we get them uh, to take care of themselves by reducing their stress and homesickness and loneliness. And this is a low-cost, low-barrier, easy sort of uh, accessible program that universities can run. Hmm. And and how do you know it's just not uh, people that really like spending time with dogs? (laughs) 
Well, we sort of assess for that because we ask them about their, their uh, if they have pets at home. Um, and then when we do randomized controlled trials, we assign them either to control or to treatment conditions. So we can compare uh, the two groups and, and see that, uh, that there are significant differences. It isn't just, you know, liking dogs. And we have lots of students who don't have dogs or haven't spent a lot of time with dogs, but they know it's good for them. So they come or somebody has nudged them to come to a session. So we see a lot of that. Right. Does it change or does anything change with what the dog does or the role of the therapy dog? I I love that question, Jill. You're a dog person, so I know that. (laughs) Yeah, we really look out for canine welfare within sessions. We can't be running these programs, you know, causing stress to the dog. So we we really monitor the um, distress signals. If there are any dogs are taken out for toilet breaks, reintroduced to sessions. They're very seasoned. We go through a rigorous sort of selection process of both the handler and the dogs. Surprisingly, uh, (laughs) your audience might be curious to, to learn that. When we do the assessment at UBC Okanagan, oftentimes the dog will pass and the handler won't. And so the team does not move forward. So, you know, we're really looking for special dogs that are really drawn to interacting with people. And then handlers who can talk to university students, get their sense of humor, support them, understand what what their experience is like. What ha- I'm surprised by that. What happens in that scenario then if the dog passes but the, the handler doesn't? Can you get another handler for the dog? No, we, you know what, I, we do a very democratic sort of collective um, uh, assessment process where everybody on my team, all 30 people in the lab, vote on every dog and every handler and at every assessment. And then I would just say, your dog is very strong. It's, um, the team is determined that uh, you, you will not be moving forward. And, um, you know, if they want to get into specifics, it's usually around this comfort level talking to university students, but they have to be able to sort of relate to, to older kids and, and get their sense of humor and and, and that's what the students are seeking. And after 12 years in the BARC program at UBC Okanagan, we've learned sort of how to sort of identify who's going to be successful within the program and support students. All right. And uh, and so, so this is, as far as we know, this is the first gender-specific study dealing with canine therapy. Do you think that this will lead to, to uh, more studies like this? Well, in the literature, people are, are had been arguing, saying, we need this, we need this. So we were kind of the first to, to, to put pen to paper and, and put that out there. So I suspect we'll see that uh, people will build on this. And again, we're trying to figure out, well, why is this the case that uh, certain genders come to these sessions more so than others? But, you know, the finding is really that it doesn't matter the gender, the dogs do good work across genders. All right. Well, it's a very, very interesting uh, findings. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. It was great talking about this. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.